we have come to the end of our study of Isaiah. 66 chapters, 42 sermons, three from a Brazilian named Bruno. Pardon me, pardon me, I'm all right. No. Seven from a Brazilian named Bruno. Three from our fellow elder Alan, and 32 of those sermons from me. But one glorious message every week, both from the text and on that screen. God says to his people, trust me, I am the Lord, your God. So if you were Isaiah, how would you end this amazing book? Well, the end was shocking to me. At the end of this book, God shows the end of all things. The scenes are described with vivid and sometimes shocking imagery. And what we see at the end of all things is God's glory in both salvation and judgment. And that's a fitting way to end the book because that's been its essence all along. On a macro level, the whole book is described in terms of judgment and salvation and in that order. Chapters 31, uh, pardon me, chapter 1 through 39 is judgment. Chapter 40 through 66, the promise of salvation. And now on a micro scale, here in chapter 66, Isaiah returns and goes back and forth between those two themes, showing that God is glorified in judgment and in salvation. So, for example, just chapter 66 alone, verse 1 through 6, judgment. 7 through 14, salvation. 15 through 17, judgment. 18 through 24, salvation. With an end view and a nod toward judgment. Why? Why this back and forth? Emphasis on God's glory in both salvation and judgment. Well, I suggest it's because Isaiah was written to a people, God's people, at this time in history, 700 B.C., a long time ago, whom God intended to display His glory to the nations. God intended to display His glory to the nations. But at this time in history, God's people were enamored with the glory of the nations. They saw the wealth and the power. They saw the success and the beauty. They saw how the nations, the world around them, had a seeming freedom to pursue happiness however they wanted to. And they were enamored. 
with the glory of the world around them. And at this time, they abandoned God in pursuit of what they saw in the nations around them. And we've been that way since Eden, haven't we? Friends, before the people of God will ever display the glory of God to the nations, we have to see God's glory. And God shows us His glory in salvation and in judgment so that our affections will be fixed on what's true and eternal instead of the facade that's right in front of our eyes every day. The end of Isaiah is the end of all things. Future for them, future for us. The end of all things. And God shows us that the end of all things is His glory in salvation and in judgment. My prayer is that you will see the glory of God today and live in light of it. Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Isaiah 66. Our text for this morning is verse 7 through 24. Isaiah 66, 7 through 24. If you're using one of the black Bibles at your feet, it's on page 625. What I'm about to read is God's Word. That should cause us to listen intentively, and maybe even as we're listening, pray. God... You have spoken to me through your word. You are speaking to me right now as I hear your word read aloud. God, please create in me the kind of heart that sees your glory and responds appropriately. Let's read God's word. Isaiah 66, 7 through 24. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth? And not cause to bring forth, says the Lord. Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, 
I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, bounced upon her knees as the one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one into the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice, and shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. Verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come And shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal, and Javan, to the coasts far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. On horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That's God's word to us.
through the prophet Isaiah. And all God's people said, Is that the ending that you expected? Did you see it? God's glory in salvation and God's glory in judgment. Back and forth, back and forth. In our text, we see three scenes of God's glory. Vivid, sometimes shocking. Three scenes of God's glory in both salvation and judgment. The first scene, verse 7 through 14, is a scene of salvation. The second scene, verse 15 through 17, is a scene of judgment. The third scene, verse 18 through 24, another scene of salvation. But did you notice how Isaiah ended, the most shocking thing to me, ending the book with a final statement, fading to black with God's victory through judgment over his enemies. It's important for us to see God's glory in both salvation and judgment today, friends. The first scene, verse 7 through 14, scene one I describe is this. In the end, God will restore Zion to the shalom he intended for his people. God will restore Zion to the shalom that he intended for his people. So lest I use words that only make sense to Christians, let me pause back up and say, when we talk about Zion, when the Bible talks about Zion, he's talking about about the world as God intended it to be, like the original Garden of Eden, and what he describes as the new heavens and the new earth, heaven, paradise, forever, for all time. Zion is where God meets with his people. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. That's Zion. In the end, this first scene is that God promises to restore Zion. Right now, what we experience on earth, it ain't Zion. God says, I'm going to put it back to, I'm using the word shalom. It's a beautiful Hebrew word, and we've used it a number of times here. But shalom means the way it was supposed to be. The perfection of the original creation before we messed it up with sin. Before we brought on, not just ourselves, but everything, the curse of sin and death. When you experience suffering and death, when you struggle against sin, you can be sure that this is not the way it was supposed to be. And you can be assured that from verse 7 through 14, God will restore Zion back to the shalom that he intends for his people. So, in classic Isaiah fashion, he doesn't just say that. He grabs a metaphor and he shows us what that means. And interestingly enough, he uses the metaphor of a woman giving birth and then nursing and comforting her child. 
Well, that's familiar to all of us. Did you know that right now we have five ladies who are expecting? And in our church, we have about 30-some, this little church has about 30-some children. Praise God. So we know something about mothers having babies and taking care of those babies. And all of us who are men, we know because we had mothers. We did all have mothers, right? Yes, okay. So he uses this imagery of of a woman. And she doesn't just give birth, but she provides everything that that child needs. And this woman, look in verse 8, this woman's name is Zion. And in verse 10, he's speaking of his city, Jerusalem. It's the capital city of God's kingdom where God dwells with his people. And so in verse 10, this is a promise to those who are mourning, mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem. So again, we've got to back up and remember that in our study, the first 65 chapters have showed us that at this time in history, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. The superpower of the day came in and just wiped Jerusalem out. God's temple, which is made of stones that are so big, so thick, not one of them. They're all torn down. The temple is destroyed. And the people, God's people in Israel, are taken into captivity as prisoners of war and shipped back to Babylon. And there they sit, wondering what's going on. Well, God takes the whole of Isaiah to explain to them what he's doing. He's purifying them. He's he's correcting them so that they'll stop being enamored with the nations and start fixing their eyes on his glory and ultimately that they'll trust him instead of looking elsewhere. He says, trust me, I am the Lord, your God. You don't need to look to wealth and beauty and power and success. Your identity, your purpose in life is fixed in being identified with me as the people of God. So he uses this imagery of a woman named Jerusalem, named Zion, giving birth to her children. And he's telling this to the people who are sitting in Babylon, mourning the destruction of their mother, Jerusalem. They feel like Jerusalem is never going to be rebuilt. And God says, I'm going to rebuild it again, and it is going to flourish. It's going to provide everything that you need, just like if you were a little tiny baby. In verse 7 through 9, God basically says, you can count on it. I guarantee this is going to happen. Look at verse 9. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause it to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says our God? God says he will not allow a miscarriage of his promise. Zion will give birth to her children, guaranteed. This is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of God's people from all time and all places. God promises that he will bring to fruition what he started. Jesus said, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul said in Philippians 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, speaking to a church in Philippi, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You can count on it. Paul said to another church in Thessalonica, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He surely will do it. God is telling his people on earth, under the curse, experiencing suffering and death and struggling against sin. This is not all there is. Trust me, I will make a new heaven and a new earth. I will have a new Jerusalem and Jerusalem will be like a mother who will give birth to her children and satisfy every one of your needs. Trust me, I am the Lord, your God. So in verse 10 through 14, God doesn't just say count on it, but look at the beginning of verse 10. God says, rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. Go ahead. Get your hopes up. It's guaranteed. Now, if you're like me, I don't get my hopes up hardly about anything because my hopes have been dashed. I've kind of become seared and jaded where as soon as I feel my hopes getting up, I kind of push them back down because they've been disappointed so many times. God is telling us here, he is holding out this vivid imagery. Imagery that... that talking about drinking deeply and being satisfied from the abundance of her glory. He's like, go ahead, get your hopes up. This meets well with pregnancy, doesn't it? During those nine months, it's that, it's that joyful and fearful state, and especially if you've experienced difficulty especially for those of you who have gone through the trauma of a miscarriage. You find out you're pregnant and you're scared to death every day after that because you're just wondering, is this... God says about giving birth to his future kingdom, you don't have to worry about this one miscarriaging. Go ahead. Get your hopes up, Christians. So look at what he says here. Look how he describes what we are going to experience because of his grace through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, the mother Zion, verse 10 through 14. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her. Enjoy all you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast that you may drink deeply with delight 
from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, watch this. That's what behold means. Check this out. Then he talks about four abundant and glorious delights in Zion. Verse 12, number one, I will extend peace. Not just a little bit of peace, not just a temporary peace like what you experience here and now, but peace like a what? River. Number two, verse 12, I will extend to you the glory of the nations. Interesting. What they were enamored with now All the wealth, all the power, all the success, all the beauty that they looked on and abandoned God for here under the curse. God says, if you'll just trust me, you're going to experience true beauty, true power, true success, true wealth, true freedom in Zion. The glory of the nations, not just a little bit, but like what? overflowing stream. It's going to come and it's going to come. It's going to overflow you. Your cup's going to be full. Number three, verse 12 and 13. He said, just like a mother who tenderly nurses her baby at her breast, takes care of every one of its needs. God says, I'm going to comfort you. Now, The Bible never talks about God as a mother, but a number of times God uses motherly love and care to describe his love and care for us. We we understand it, and let's face it, motherly love is a lot better than fatherly love. so (laughs) So what does he say? Just look there in verse 12 and 13. He said that that we are going to be nursed, carried on her hip, bounced on her knee, and comforted. I'm going to comfort you. Do any of you have sorrows? Are any of you suffering? God will put an end to all of it. And you will experience eternal comfort. In Mother Zion. From Father God. Number four, four abundant, glorious delights from Mother Zion. Number four, verse 14, you will see and flourish because of what you see. What do we see? Two things. Look there in verse 14. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. Oh, my goodness. Can you? So when we can't see his hand, trust his heart. Why is that phrase in songs? Because we can't see his hand. We can't figure out what God's doing a whole lot of times, right? We just experience things and we're like, what is God doing? God says part of the new Jerusalem, you're going to see my hand. You're going to understand my purposes and ways. Praise God for that. But he didn't just leave it there. He didn't just say, I'm going to show you my hand But what does he say at the end of verse 14? And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Friends, under the curse, there is no salvation without judgment. Can't happen. 
Salvation was never necessary until sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, God had to overcome sin to save his people. And so we see even at the iconic redemption story of Israel being saved from Egypt, that the song of Moses from Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses said, Did you see what our God did? He threw the horse and the rider into the sea. He trampled chariots and the walls of the water came over them. And God saved his people. Now, no doubt, no doubt, the Israelites standing on the other side of the Red Sea Watching men die? Watching horses die? Would have been grieved for the life of that person. But friends, God was saving his people. They were their enemies. Egypt just kept them in bondage for 400 years, telling them more bricks, less straw. God delivered them, having given them 10 signs, 10 chances. Let my people go. No way. There is no salvation without judgment. God is glorified in salvation because God is glorified by conquering the enemy. So here, Isaiah 66, over and over and over again, says, I'm going to show you my glory in salvation. I want to show you that in the end, I am going to restore Zion like a mother who is going to provide everything her children needs. And it is going to be glorious and satisfying. You can get your hopes up because you can drink deeply. Friends, because we know that that is true, you know what we can do right here, right now in 2022? We can go ahead and start rejoicing. It's really true. Go ahead. Get your hopes up. This ain't all there is. This is not your best life now, Christian. Rejoice. This vision of God's glory and salvation at the end causes us to rejoice. And we don't have to wait to be satisfied. We don't have to wait to drink deeply. We don't have to sit here and just be enamored by all the glory of everything around us. If we'll recognize now that we have the true riches in Christ paid for in full, we can go ahead and start experiencing them now. But know this. You're probably going to experience them on the inside while there's still a whole lot of curse on the outside. Scene number two. Verse 15 through 17, we can tell immediately that God switches to judgment. For behold... He's just talking about a nursing mother, and he says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire. Okay, there's a change. There was no paragraph break necessarily in the original text. I don't know if Isaiah drew a line, said next scene. I don't know what happened, but we can tell. This is a different scene. We've just switched from salvation to judgment. And in this second scene of the end, 
God will rid the world of false worship. He just described Mother Zion giving abundant, glorious delights. That's salvation. But to do that, he has to rid the world of everything that is evil and false. And here specifically, he's talking about false worship and false worshipers. So this is odd, but if you've been tracking with us in Isaiah, this has been a problem since the very beginning of Isaiah. We understand that when God looks at his people in Isaiah 700 B.C., A lot of them, they go through the rituals, but they got no heart for God. So they're like going to church, but they don't care about God. They might even be singing the songs, but they could care less about actually worshiping God. They might offer up prayers when it's convenient or when they need something, but they don't pray because they actually love God. They just go through the religious rituals, and then they think that they're righteous before God. And God says, You remember uh, last week in chapter 65, or at the beginning of 66 and back in 65, that God said, when you bring your offerings of bulls, it's like murder. Uh, when When you bring your little lambs, it's just like breaking a dog's neck. He views their religious rituals, which he told them to do, but when they do it without the heart of true worship, when they do it in false worship, it's nothing but animal cruelty. God said in Malachi, I wish somebody would shut the door and stop this. It it makes me want to puke. The Old Testament has a lot of vivid imagery. (laughs) If you haven't read it, you ought to read it sometime. And most of it's rated PG. A lot of it's rated R. It's, It's really, really rough stuff. Okay. But anyway. The second scene, in the end, God will rid. Okay, that means get rid of, conquer, overcome banish the world of all false worship. So look here in verse 15 and 16. What is the Lord going to do? Notice the verbs. The Lord is coming. The Lord is rendering his anger and his rebuke. And the Lord is entering into judgment. Against whom? Verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves and go into the garden. Sounds good so far. Following one into the midst... What? Eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice. Okay, that's weird. Whether the people actually did something with the abomination and mice, I have no idea what that is. But I'm seriously doubting that anybody here is exercising their false worship with pig's flesh and mice. That doesn't matter. It's just like nobody's going around breaking dogs' necks or, or murdering. It, it's, this, is an, this is God saying, this is how your false worship looks to me. This is what it looks like to me when you just act like coming to church is going to earn you my blessing. Jesus talked to the Pharisees about this. You remember, he said that you do all the right things, but your heart is far from God. And you're nothing more than a pretty tomb full of dead men's bones. That's what religion is to God. And so when God describes religion here in the previous chapters, those of you who have been tracking with us, what we're seeing here is just the, the uh, 
the abhorrence of God against false religion. And he says, I'm coming in fire. I'm going to render my anger and I'm going to enter into judgment specifically against false worshipers. I'm glad that's not me, right? Because I've never been an idolater. Any kind of false worship is worshiping something other than God. Have you ever been an idolater? Oh, man. Every one of us deserve for God to come. Did you notice how he describes his coming in judgment against false worship? Like he's the king of creation. He is God and we make little statues of the American dream or of success or of our kids and we bow down and we spend our money and our time and our worship and we find our significance in all of these things and then we come to God and pull him like a slot machine when we need something from him. Friends, we deserve judgment. And if you don't know that yet, if you have an argument against that, let's talk about it. But you're just blind to the offensiveness of our own false worship. We we really are. We're, We're wicked to the core. Did you notice what his coming looks like? He's coming. He's going to render judgment. And he he says, look at it. Verse 15, it's going to be fiery. He comes in fire with war chariots like whirlwind. His anger is fury, flames of fire, verse 16, by fire and his sword. Make no mistake, God is a divine warrior who will conquer his enemies in the end. Make no mistake. Verse 16, not only is it fiery, it's universal. Who does this encapsulate? It all flesh, all flesh, all men, women, boys and girls who set themselves against God, who say, God, you're not God of my life. I'm God of my life. Verse 17, it's not just fiery and universal, but it will be final. All of it will what? Come to an end. In the end, God will rid the world of false worship. This is the glory of God in judgment. It glorifies God's holiness, does it not? It glorifies his worth. And yet it's a horrifying picture of judgment. Seeing God's glory in judgment calls us to repent, every one of us. Don't look anywhere else for false worship except for in the mirror of your own heart. It calls every one of us to see false worship here and to turn away from it and to say, God, no, you alone are worthy of my life. You alone are sovereign over me. And I bow in humility. Who am I? I'm nothing but a worm. We see this calls us to repent of all false worship. And not just personally. So we should do this personally. But friends, this is, this is for our church. This is for the church. 
of all time and all places. When we see God's rendering judgment against all false worship, then as a church, we ought to repent of every aspect of false worship that we might even get into. There were years of my life that I followed the secular idea of what church was supposed to be, the American church, into all kinds of prosperity theology. Come and come and pet God and sing songs to Him, and, and you'll be blessed. There were years of my life when I got away from what God says in His Word about how we should do church and entered into the business model of how to do church because the ends are going to justify the means and we want more people, so we need to make everything palatable. We don't want to talk about judgment on a Sunday morning. Let's talk about that on a Wednesday night Bible study. But here, we just want people to come. We want to make them feel good so that they leave happy. Winchester Baptist Church, we need to repent of any of that stuff. Don't let it in the doors. Don't let it in your heart. Because in the end, God's going to rid the world of all false worship. Scene number three. In the end. Verse 18 through 24, in the end. God will gather His people from all nations into Zion to worship Him forever. In the end, verse 18 through 24, the final scene, God says, I promise I'm going to make Zion the new Jerusalem. Mother Zion's going to satisfy you. I'm going to rid the world of all false worship. And then he's going to gather all of Zion's children, not just from Israel, but from places like America and Russia and Ukraine and North Korea and South Africa and Germany, and Spain. God's going to gather His people from the four corners of the world. He's going to bring them into Zion, His holy mountain, His city. And they are going to... I started with the word worship Him forever. Good word. It's in the text. But I changed it. Because too often... We just think about heaven being this fluffy, cloudy place where we're all wa uh, walking around in diapers, strumming gold harps, singing all day long, and we're like, that's going to be boring. Have you ever thought about heaven that way? You're like, okay, I could do that for like a couple of days, maybe a week or two. Maybe I'll like have a new desire and I'll be happy to do that for a year or three. But forever? I don't want to sing forever. Cloud, uh, heaven's not a cloudy place. We don't have diapers on and we're not strumming golden harps. That's all a bunch of, uh, of uh, junk. And the reason that I didn't just put worship here is because the end of worship is something else. The end of worship, God says, you worship me and it will be the greatest joy of your life. Drink deeply. Just like a mother comforting your children. When you worship me, my people in my place living under my rule, get my blessings. 
So I finished the sentence with, in the end, God will gather his people from all nations into Zion to enjoy him forever. I can look forward to that. Because the Bible from cover to cover describes the new creation, basically like Garden of Eden, not just two, but like better, with all of the stuff that God created us to delight in. So look what he says here in verse 18 through 24. And, and, I, and I'll just say that as, as we see this, that if the first time you read it, it was difficult figuring out the they's and the them's and the theirs, it was for me too. Literally, I sat for a couple of hours just figuring out who every they, them, and their were, and they're all... There's a lot of different they's, them's, and theirs going down through here. So if there's a they, I'm probably going to insert what I believe the they refers back to as I'm reading this. But God starts off in verse 18 and he says, I know that the false, I know the false worshippers' thoughts and their thoughts and their, and their works and the time is coming to what? To gather all nations and tongues. I'm going to gather all nations and tongues and the nations shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among the nations. So immediately we see in verse 18 that the the Lord declares that there's a time coming to gather his people from all nations to see his glory. Verse 19, and the Lord sets a sign among them. What is the sign? If you know for sure, let's talk afterwards. Because I don't, and commentators warn that we should not get too specific about this sign. A sign is some type of miraculous event through which God displays his power, and he's going to call the nations to himself. So what is that sign? Well, either God sets a sign among them, the nations, that causes them to see his glory, or God sets a sign among them his people that marks them, seals them, and ensures their salvation from judgment, just like God did with the sign of the blood on the doorpost when his death angel passed by. We're not sure which one because it just says them. It's not explained in the text, and though it's quite a lot of fun to speculate what this sign might be, it's best if we just understand that God desires and will do whatever is necessary to get all of Zion's children from every nation on earth. And aren't you glad about that, Mr. American? How about those from Brazil? Aren't you glad that God will do whatever it takes to make sure that all of his children in Brazil will come to Zion? If we continue, which we will in verse 19 through 21, very interestingly, after God determines it's time to gather all my children from the nations and sets a sign among them, look at verse 19 through 21. Check this out. The Lord sends survivors. Survivors of what? Survivors of the judgment. Survivors to declare his glory to the nations. And those survivors 
bring their brothers from the nations. And look toward 20 and 21. What does God say that the nations, all of Zion's children coming to him looks like? It looks like caravans of camels and donkeys and horses and chariots coming with gold and frankincense and myrrh and all of the things to worship God. He says, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen to see my people coming from the nations. Did you know God thinks about you that way? Well, you ought to know because of the price that he paid to make it happen. God paid the price of his own son on the cross to buy your soul, to take you from the false worshiper that you and I are and bring you to Mother Zion so that he could nurse us and bless us with the abundance of his wealth forever. The Lord sends survivors back. Since this is still future for us, I wonder if we might not be some of those survivors that are sent out to the nations to bring in all of our brothers and sisters to Zion. Verse 22 and 24, 22 through 24, the Lord assures his people that once they're there, just like the new heavens and the new earth are going to remain, like fixed and secure forever, God says, you are that secure. God says, just like from new moon, month to month, from Sabbath to Sabbath, week to week, what's going to happen in this new Jerusalem? All worship, all, I mean, pardon me, all flesh are going to come to worship before me. Month to month, perpetually. Week to week, the eternal Sabbath. Everybody in this new Jerusalem will come to worship before me. And shockingly, one commentator says there seems to be a cemetery beside the new Jerusalem where they, who's they? Zion's children. Your offspring go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Their worm will not die. Just like, just like your peace will flow like a river, their worm will never die. Just like worship will be unending, their fire will never be quenched. And as Zion's children look on the dead bodies of those rebels, they're abhorred. Why? Because evil is banished forever. And God, who is glorified in salvation, is also glorified in judgment. Friend, I don't know how you're feeling. I don't know what you're thinking. But I know what I was thinking when I read that. Recognizing that only by the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this false worshiper 
this one who has rebelled against God more times and in more ways than I would ever want you to find out about. This child of Zion has been saved rather than judged. This vision of God's glory and salvation and judgment stirs us to thank God for gathering us from the nations. Thank God humbly. Thank God for gathering you. If your eyes have been opened to the gospel, if you are a Christian today, don't pat yourself on the back. Fall down on your knees and on your face and thank God for his grace to you through Jesus Christ. This vision of God's glory in salvation doesn't just cause us to revel in the experience of God's glory, but it motivates us to participate in gathering our neighbors and everyone from the nations. Does that mean that you have to go out and knock on doors? No. But friends, God didn't save us just so that we could be happy in our little churches. He saved us so that we could display the gospel to our neighbors in the nations. He saved us corporately and individually so that we could declare the glory of God to the nations. So this vision motivates us to participate. Participate with your children. Declare the God's glory to them. Participate with your extended family and your neighbors and in your workplace and in your school. Friends, whatever sphere you're in, we're one of the survivors. So we've seen three scenes of God's glory in both salvation and judgment. In the end, God will restore Zion to the shalom that he intended for his people. You know what that means? That we, we, can, work, we can rejoice. So do it. Let that fuel you this week. In the end, God's going to rid the world of all false worship. It's not just out there. It is out there, but it's in here too. So when we see that, let's repent. And in the end, God will gather his people from all nations into Zion to enjoy him forever. So thank God. And then participate in displaying and declaring his glory to your neighbors and nations. Let's pray. God of peace. You have done everything necessary through the judgment of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners like us. I pray that our whole spirit and our whole body and our whole soul and our whole church would be kept blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, you have called us. You are faithful to your promises. So we count on you to do it. May we live in light of the glory that we have seen today. In Jesus' name, amen.